Uh, we are uh, kind of throwing a wild card at you today. If you've been with us, you know that we just uh, finished preaching, reading and preaching through the book of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel. Whew, we made it. Um, and so today's kind of a wild card because, well, because I can do what I want. Um, I can preach what I want. But, um, but, but honestly, I've, I picked this as kind of a one-off sermon uh, leading into our two guest speakers. And, and I chose it with some thought. It wasn't just random because I can do what I want. But I, I chose uh, a closing verse in the book of Jude. Uh, go ahead and open up the table of contents. The book of Jude is in the New Testament. It is a, like a two-page letter. It's a, it doesn't even have a chapter. It's one chapter. And I'm going to look at the last two verses of, of Jude. Um, just kind of some, some disclaimers about this passage. Um, it's, it's what we call a doxology. Okay? It's a big term, really easy to understand. Doxos means uh, praise, and logos means word. So it's a word of praise. Okay, so a doxology, there's, they're scattered throughout the Bible. They were used in the Old Testament in the Israelites' religion. They would use them in, in their corporate worship. But it was a, it was a burst of praise. And, and the apostle Paul uses them in a number of his letters. And here Jude uses it in his letter to conclude it. And it is, it is just that. And so um, why, why, preach a, why preach a doxology? Well, a couple of reasons. Uh, one is we're in summer, and at least in my house, we've got young kids. It's got just a different feel to it. You know, you know some of us have trips planned. Others of us don't. But, but seasons of life just have different feels. And, and the same is true of, of churches. Churches have different feels. And, and I just found it rather appropriate that, that we would begin our summer with, with doxology, that our summer would be filled with, with praise, uh, it's one of my deepest longings that this would be a place that's filled with praise and words of praise to God. So we're going to look at Jude um, beginning in verse 24. I'm going to read two verses, just verse 24 and 25. And so if you're following along uh, in your Bible, that's where we're at. If not, it's in, on the screen for us today. This is the word of the Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this, the word of our Lord, will stand forever. Let's, God, let's ask God to bless the preaching of it. Father, it is, it is with honest hearts that we come to your word, longing to, to hear from you. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would that you would do just that. That you would that you would help us to hear you. That you would fill our hearts with with doxology, and that we might be changed by it uh, for the better. And so, Lord, I pray that you would that you would use your instrument, this man, uh, to speak to your people who need to hear from you. And so, Lord, we ask these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there was a, there is an article which I just realized is not on my iPad. That's fantastic. My notes are, are lacking. Um, so uh, there's an article. There's a group called the Babylon Bee. Uh, if you've ever read The Onion, you know, a little distasteful. The Babylon Bee is the Christian version of The Onion. You're safe to travel on the Babylon Bee's website. It's it's wonderful. It's this Christian satire that. Um, I'm not even going to be able to use this opening illustration well. Let me try it. Uh, it's this Christian satire that, that makes fun of Christians. And, and when we make fun of ourselves, it's, it's fantastic. And in, in this article, which I do not have, this is fantastic. 
I'm going to have to paraphrase this, this article, which is terrible. In this article, it talks about the insecurity that many evangelicals have. In fact, it talks about how this woman could not forgive herself. Um, Tito saw this this week. You posted it on your Facebook. This is, this is a preacher's worst nightmare when his notes fail him. So in this, in this article, it talked about how she, just, she knew that God forgave her. She knew all that Christ had done for her, but she just could not bring it to forgive herself. And it just talked, and it's, it's making fun of Christians, uh, how we do this to ourselves, how we wallow in this guilt and shame like Christ's work is not enough for us. And, and I read it, and, and you kind of giggle, but it really kind of hit a sore spot, like, like, we do that, right? You know, there's always a little bit of truth in all of our humor. And, and that was the case in this article is that's, that's funny, but that's really true. We do that. We, we wallow in our guilt and shame as to think everything were dependent upon us. Listen, um, Jude's doxology here does something extremely phenomenal. At least it does for me, and I hope it does for you. It shows us this. This is the main thing I want you to see from it. It shows us that that we're not strong enough to keep God's love and God's not weak enough for us to lose it. It gives us this deep-seated assurance that our salvation is not based on anything that we have done nor that we ever will do. You know, one of the sweet spots, in my personal opinion, of Christianity is that we know and we affirm this truth all the time that, that our salvation cannot be earned, that, it, that, it's, that it's an unearned love. But at the same time, just as much as we cannot earn God's love, so we cannot unearn God's love. And I think that that's what God has for us in, in, um, in Jude's doxology today, that if God's love can't be earned, it also can't be unearned. Here's, here's how the, the doxology is really framed. It's framed on two big words. They're actually action words that God does. It's keeping and presenting and then in verse 25, it talks about how we should respond to that, namely praising. So we're going, to look at, we're going to look at how God does the keeping, and then we're going to look at how God does the presenting, and then we're going to look in verse 25 at how we're supposed to do the praising. Uh, one of the dangers in doing a, a wild card kind of one-off sermon is that we would take a passage and that we would just rip it out of the Bible and that we would just do whatever we want with it, right? Like we can just kind of make it say what we want because we haven't really spent time in Jude's letter. And so that's really dangerous. So I'm going to spend a, a little bit of time just couching this passage into what's going on. Now, if you're new to the Bible, let me just catch you up to speed on what Jude is, okay? Jude is in the New Testament and it's a letter. And it was a letter written to real people with real problems. And so this is, this is a historical thing. This, this actually happened. This wasn't just like leather bound so like, you know, Christians in 2016 could kind of just feel good about what Christ has said. This, this is actually couched in real, real problems. And, and the problem in Jude was there were a lot of false teachers that were coming into the church. They were coming in and they were, they were dividing over doctrine and they were, they were divisive in the way they were coming in. And Jude, actually, if you read it in its entirety, which I would encourage you to do perhaps even this afternoon, if you read it in its entirety, it's a judgment letter. It's a, a letter that is just ripe with very strong language. Um, it's, it's filled with judgment towards these false teachers. And so the doxology really functions in a way that encourages God's people in the midst of the trouble that they're experiencing. 
Uh, it was written by Jude, who was the brother of James and likely the brother of Jesus. So there's this apostolic connection to it. Uh, just historically, again, just kind of giving you an idea of if, if you're new to the Bible, where this is at. Historically, this was written after Jesus had died. He'd rose again. He had ascended. So this is, this is years after all of the events around Jesus. So this is, this is later down the road. Um, but it was primarily given to encourage people and to lift them up into praise to God. So, so here's, the, here's the main word, uh, if you're looking at the, at the text, it's in verse 24, and it's that word, to keep. Um, it's a word-driven passage. Uh, the word keep, it could mean to guard or to watch or to follow. It's this, it's this word that just has this distinct flavor of guarding something, of keeping, of watching, of observing. And so the question that we should be asking is, well, what, what's he talking about? And who's keeping who? And what's going on? Well, it says to keep you. Well, this was written to, to who? Well, verse 1 tells us who it was written to. If you look at the second half of verse 1, if you have your, your Bible in front of you, it says to those who were called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. In other words, this was written to Christians. And so this was written, yes, in that historical time point, but it was written to you if you're a Christian. And it was written for your encouragement if, if you're a Christian. And so God is keeping Christians. Well, what's he keeping them from? The text says he's keeping them from stumbling. Um, the word there, again, kind of just a, a word study of that. It, it's, it's stumbling that, that leads to ruin. It, it's stumbling that ultimately leads to destruction, to judgment. The, the, the stumbling that, that Jude actually confronts in the entire letter of false teachers He's saying God keeps you from that. He keeps you from falling. It's actually the language of a, a journeyman on a path. He keeps you from falling off of the path that leads to destruction. Um, I've recently been rereading. This is only probably my second time reading through a Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, some of you may be familiar with this. It's a, a great work of literature. Pilgrim's Progress was written by a, a Puritan named John Bunyan. Um, it, has, it has withstood the, the test of time. It is one of the best-selling books in, in all of literature, not, not just like Christian literature, like all of literature. So a Pilgrim's Progress, and a, a Pilgrim's Progress, if you're not familiar with it, is about a, a man named Christian and his journey to the celestial city, and, and up from his city of destruction, that's his hometown, to the celestial city, and it's an allegory, so they use, it's kind of, it's poetic in nature, and it describes this man's journey from unbelief, really, to belief, and at the beginning of the journey, it shows that he's weighed down by his burden, his guilt, and his shame, it's, it's, it's depicted in the backpack. And along the journey on his path to the celestial city, he's, he runs into all kinds of interesting characters. It's, it's a fantastic book. And he runs into all of these characters who are offering him different ways and sometimes shortcuts to get to the celestial city. And at one point in his journey, Christian arrives at the Hill of Difficulty. And at the Hill of Difficulty, he's confronted with two other alternative options which go around the Hill of Difficulty, two other easier, wider paths. And he chooses to take the less traveled, the narrow path over the Hill of Difficulty. And as he's going up the Hill of Difficulty, here's what he chants to himself over and over again. He says, the hill, the quote should be up there on the screen, Nathan, if you have it. It says, the hill... Though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way to life lies here. 
Come pluck up heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better though difficult, the right way to go, than wrong though easy, where the end is woe. Christian picks up, I think, on an impulse of the Christian life that you and I struggle with. And it's the impulse that he, in his words, guess we don't have the quote, says, let's neither faint nor fear on this path. You see, fainting for the Christian is that which gives up or is overly overwhelmed by the circumstances, right? Fearing is in this trusting that, that actually us traveling on the path of difficulty is up to us. That, that somehow our steps are ordered by ourselves. And so Christian reminds himself, and, and I think he's reminding us, that we should neither faint nor fear in the Christian life. You see, Jude's doxology is doing everything to show us that God is guarding our path in a way that will never let us see ruin, ever. That ruin cannot touch the Christian. That there is never ultimate falling off of the path for the Christian. You see, we have to know this, that God's ability to keep us is stronger than our inclination to wonder. God is stronger than us. God can keep us. One of my favorite verses, I often share some of my favorite hymns, is we sing this one frequently, is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And I learned this, you know, hymns have a lot of language that we don't use in every day. Like we're not talking old King James anymore. So there's a lot of language that sometimes we, we sing and we're like, what does that mean? Well, I learned this in one of the verses in, in Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It says, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained. Let that grace now like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So the, 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 the hymn presents this idea that we are, we are inclined, we are prone, we have this proclivity to leave the God we love. But our prayer is that God would like a fetter keep us. Well, a fetter, I didn't know what a fetter was, maybe you do, but a fetter is something that, that binds us, it's like shackles. Right, And so, so what we are asking God to do in that song is to bind us to himself, to shackle us like a fetter, because unless he does that, we are prone to wonder. We are inclined to leave the God we love. We will stumble. And so Jude is showing us that God does just that. He keeps us from stumbling. When this truth gets inside of you, it actually strengthens your walk. Because if you're hearing me right, one of your thoughts should be this. Well, if God keeps me like that, well, then who cares how I live? Why does it matter? What, what does it matter, the choices that I'm making towards walking in, in path of holiness? If, if you're hearing me right, that should at least be a thought. But, but here's why that's not right thinking. Because it's not a free pass for licentious living because the God that keeps you like the God of Jude's doxology is a God that you want to be close to. Because a God that keeps you like that, that watches you, that observes you, is a God you want to be close to. It's that kind of love that, that you're looking for, and it's that kind of love that I'm looking for. A love that loves us in spite of us. Someone that is so committed to us that that nothing you can do can make them love you any less. That's the God who keeps you. Secondly, let's look at the God who presents us. Let's look at the presenting. Um, one of my uh, most 
well, maybe not most interesting, but an interesting time of shopping for me was engagement ring shopping. Now, it's been a while since I did this, but it has marked me forever. Um, when we were, we were pretty young and dumb when we got married, early 20s, and when I went shopping for Heather's engagement ring, it was like a big deal. Um, I am kind of old school, like I did not involve, I think it's kind of new school where the, where the fiance basically tells you what she wants. I don't know, I feel like that's like new culture, like here's the ring I want, you know? Like it wasn't like that in the you know, early 2000s or whatever. So I go in as this bewildered young college guy with not very much money into this great jeweler in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I go in, probably looking like a deer in headlights, and I begin looking for this, for this ring, you know, the one, the ring. And, you know, the jeweler lays out the black velvet pad, and, you know, I had picked a couple diamonds, and they, they sprawl out the bling all across the top. And she begins, you know, telling me about them, and I begin asking how much each one of them costs, and, and we kind of, we you know, did the two-step dance with some of that. And at one point, she hands me the eyeglass, you know, the fancy eyeglass that they, like, dangle around their necks. She hands me this as though I'm supposed to know what to do with this. And so I take it, and I act like I know what I'm doing with this. And so I, I grab the, the diamond, and you hold it with tweezers, and, and you start, because this is what she did right before me, you know, you start looking in the light, with the eyeglass, and I, I act like, oh yeah, that's beautiful, love it, looks great. And then I just, I just be honest and transparent. I said, what am I looking for? Like, what, what, what is it? I wanna know, this is gonna be the single most adult purchase I've ever made up to this point in my life. What am I looking for? And she answered, inclusions. You're looking for inclusions. I said, okay, well, what's an inclusion? Well, an, an inclusion is an internal blemish in the diamond. And so when you see the inclusions, that's what the whole grading system is based off of, the number of blemishes that are in the diamond. And so she picks it up and she goes, oh, yeah, like, she, oh, I see that one. And so I pick it up and I go, oh, yeah, I see that one. And I didn't see anything and I bought it anyway. <laughs> but my, my point was this diamond was perfect for Heather. I loved it. I knew she would love it. And there were blemishes in it and I could see none of them. It was the perfect diamond to me. You see, God is telling us that actually in Christ, that's what he's done. He no longer sees our internal nor our external blemishes. He sees us as the perfect diamond. Now, um, that, is, that is humbling. Um, the promise that, that we will be put in the presence of God's glory blamelessly, without blemish. That just can't grow cold on our ears. Um, but, but perhaps what makes that a little bit more warming and, and more promising to us is, is not just the what of it that we're presented to God, but actually who is behind that promise, namely God and his glory. Um, what you have to understand about a statement in the New Testament like that is you have to have a broad understanding of, of who God is and what that means to be in the presence of a God like that. Let's just for a minute just kind of relish in this. You see, God, the God of the Bible is the God who made the cosmos. He made everything in its existence. He flung stars and planets and galaxies and he holds them all together. Things that we haven't even discovered there are Milky Ways and universes. He filled oceans and he told them where to stop. He separated land. He, he holds all of, you know, everything rotates in this perfect universe. All of it held together by this one 
true and glorious God. And, and in his creation, as wonderful as all of those things are, he put his crown, the prized possession, on one thing, you and me. Humanity is the crown of God's creation. That is where God's glory is most indelibly stamped on all of creation. And so if you, without even knowing what the Bible says about what we've done with that glory, your own experience tells us that we have robbed God of his glory, that we have actually taken his glory and trampled on it. You see, what the Bible calls sin is actually a thievery, a stealing of God's glory. We, in our essence, who we are by nature, are glory graspers. We try to take God's glory at every given opportunity. But the Bible does not leave us in that predicament. You see, as image bearers who have fallen as glory graspers, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. God cannot be in the presence of glory thieves like you and me. He cannot tolerate it. He is too just. He is too good for glory thieves to come into his presence. And so in his goodness and in his wisdom, he sent his own son who came indelibly as God in the flesh. John 1 says that he was with God, that he has always been with God, that he's the eternal one. And he came and he put on flesh. He became like us. Like the, the very emotions that you feel, the temptations that you experience, all of those things, though a different setting, Jesus knew them and he was found blameless. He did not stumble at any point. He never veered off of the path of submitting to God's authority. He was the perfect man. And so doing just that, he deserved to do one thing, to go into God's presence, blameless, unblemished. But instead, he continued walking this life and he took the death and the punishment that glory thieves like you and glory thieves like me deserved. He came and he bore its fullness on the cross. And why did he do that? So that the glory that we try to steal could be restored. So that the relationship that was wrecked by our sin could be mended by his wounds. On the cross, what we see is not some misunderstood Jewish man who fell into hard circumstances. What we see is the Son of God becoming sin and going into the presence of God's glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 puts it this way. It says that for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, on the cross, there was this great exchange. Jesus becomes sin and goes into the presence of a glorious God, and he's punished. And his people who trust in him by faith receive the righteousness that he had earned for them. There's this great exchange that presents God's people as blameless in his sight. We have to know this, believers and unbelievers, that blameless perfection is the only way to stand in the presence of glory. The hope of the gospel frees us to stop trying to make ourselves blameless. It's the exhausting work of the Christian treadmill. Right? It's that, that constant desire for us to be perfect and unblemished and blameless, which is, which is a, a longing that we should all have. But, but the truth is that we cannot do that for ourselves. But Christ is the one who presents us blameless before the presence of his glory. 
So what's the result of this? If God keeps us, and then he presents us as blameless, how now shall we live? Verse 25, we should praise him. Um, I continue to be astounded how um, just basic APS education has failed me. Um, I, I'm sorry, I, I know we're, most of us were APS educated. I, I'm just dumb as rocks, and I'm continually learning. And, um, you know, I, I, as I was thinking about the universe this week, I was thinking about the moon, just kind of random thoughts of a preacher on a Wednesday. We think about moons. Um, and the moon, though this bright and glorious thing, you know, when you go back to kind of seventh grade, you know, whatever, is that astronomy? I don't know. What is that? Whatever we study, the moon, it doesn't have light in itself. You guys realize this? Like, a light came on in my head this way. I was like, wait, that's not light coming out of the moon. The moon is a big, empty rock, Right? It's, it, it's not a, a, a source of light, even though it provides light. It is, a, it is simply a reflection of light. Did I just blow your mind, Andrew? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so there's this rock in the sky that reflects the light of the sun. And, and here's kind of the metaphor I'm grasping at here, is that the Christian life is just that, that we are to be moonlike. Namely, reflectors of light. You know, when doxology like this gets into us, it comes out of us. And so there's something to be said about the Christian whose life is marked in extraordinary ways, not because of who they are in and of themselves, but because of what God has done for them in Christ. We are to be moonlike. Um, worship or, or doxology, as I'm kind of using the term a lot here today, is not summarized in, in being a Christian. Uh, it's not living a good life. It's not making good moral decisions. Doxology isn't even just Christianity per se as, as a system. It's not a, a list of behaviors or lifestyle choices. It's not a political party or, or any of those things. It's, it's not doctrinal standards. It's not just what you believe and where you line up theologically. The substance of worship is Christ. Jesus is the weight of the doxology. He's the center of it. Look at verse 25. It's, it's no mistake that, that, God, that, that God, by the inspiration, through the inspiration of the Spirit, says, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. The center of doxology is and always has been Jesus, and the reason why is because Jesus earned it, that Jesus deserves doxology. To Jesus be glory and majesty and dominion and authority. And we diminish this glory when we refuse to give him praise. And so, um, who is a doxology like this for? It's really good news for sinners. Do you know that? That doxology really means more to people who know that they're sinners. Doxology is for people that have lustful hearts, that for whatever reason, in and of themselves, they cannot fix their eyes on their wife, and that their eyes are straying constantly. And a doxology like this, God tells us, my commitment is to you, and I'm keeping you blameless. Doxology like this is for people that have addictions. They have addicted hearts. They're addicted to food or wine 
exercise and body image, addicted to public appearance, approval, status. It's for the addicted heart, and, and to the addicted heart, the doxology says, you're enough for me. God says, you're enough for me, and I'm keeping you blameless. Uh, the doxology is for people that are unsure of their salvation, that, that they are unconvinced that they're a believer. Maybe that's you. Like you are on this fence where you've been around Christianity. You're familiar with the good news about Jesus and the Bible generally, and, and you're just not convinced you're a believer. In fact, you've convinced yourself that you're not a believer. And for the weak and weary, unassured believer, God says, I'm stronger than your weakness. God is telling us that it's actually not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. I'm keeping you blameless. The doxology is for the troubled Christian, the person whose life is like a minefield. Trouble is always around the corner. You know, financial instability, family brokenness, relationships that won't last, you know, death, darkness, depression, clouds that are gray and just will not leave you. The doxology tells us, God says, my heart aches with you, and I'm keeping you blameless. Listen, um, kind of here's how I want to just kind of conclude this. I want to ask the question uh, of what, what does doxology actually do to us? And, and I think one of the things, at least what it's done for me, is doxology moves us back to the center. What I mean by that is, is we oftentimes live our lives in the margins, right? The margins of everything that our life consists of, right? Work, family, fun, education, all, all of these things are margin, and they consume all of our lives. I mean, it's what we do kind of Monday through Saturday, right? And so what doxology does is, is it plots us right back in the center, right, right back at Jesus, and it gives us new perspective to function in those margins. Um, if, if your life, if you're tired of living life in the margins, if the margins are kind of uninspiring for you, doxology is what you need. Um, if you're here today and perhaps you're not, not even a believer, first off, thank you for being here. Um, I think, I think there's something that the doxology offers you. Um, do you know why you love sports? We love to, you know, watch, you know, these fantastic athletes do spectacular things that none of us can do. The reason why is because we were made to be in awe of glory. Like God made us to love that. Not to love the sports, but to love glory. You know why you love work so much? It's because you love status. You love approval. You love being affirmed that you're doing a good job. Do you know why you love family so much? It's because, because you love to be loved. We, we all need it. We crave it. And we look for it in our families. But to this point in your life, the center of your life, the, the doxology of your life has primarily been you. That you are the center. And everything in the margins revolve around you. And what the gospel calls us to is to remove ourselves from the center and to put Jesus right there. And to move out of the margins and to move into the center. And to center our life around doxology and the substance of it, namely Jesus. 
you know, I, I do make the large assumption that most of us here are believers, like we're Christians, you know, we're, we're professing faith, and that's why most of us are here. And you too need to know that, that you were made for glory. And that's why you too need the doxology. And so your inclination, your wandering is to go to those margins, right? To live out of those margins. But God wants you in the center of doxology. See, the, the margins of your life are important. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we have to like do the whole John the Baptist, go out there and, 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 and live in the wilderness. I'm not saying that. The margins are important, but they're only important when you view them from the center, when you're, when you're in doxology. So center your life around doxology. This summer, vacation through doxology. Work through doxology. Parent through doxology. Be married from doxology. Be single from doxology. That's what God's word is calling us to, is to center our lives around this. Listen, if you, like me, are tired of living in the margins, come to the center. Come to doxology because it's sweet there. It's where Jesus meets his people. Would you consider that an invitation today? Let's pray. Father, we... Um, we hear words, and sometimes, Lord, they, they fall on our hearts coldly, but Lord, I pray that they would, they would warm us today and that we, um, we would be overwhelmed by doxology and the way that you have loved sinners in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take this, this burst of praise written in your word and that it would fill our hearts with hope, knowing that you're the God who keeps us and who presents us blameless, without blemish, spotless, clean. And that's how you see us, Lord. Lord, it's, it's hard for us to see how you could do that, but we know that you've done that for us in Christ. So Lord, make that a reality to us today, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.